One of the, the consistent themes God has been dealing with, with me about for the last several months is that he is far greater than I've ever realized. One of the main prayers I, I pray uh, on an almost daily basis is Moses' prayer in Exodus 33:18. show me your glory. I, I want to, to see God as great as he is. I want to understand how great God truly is. I, I don't want to be guilty of the charge Martin Luther leveled against a Roman Catholic monk when he told him, your God is far too human. I'm convinced that the greater my view of God is, the more radical my obedience to God will be. Understanding God's greatness not only changes our devotion, but it alleviates our anxieties. With everything going on in the world and everything that goes on in our lives, it's good for us to lift our eyes from the here and now and fully look at the glory and the greatness of our God. We need to do this because what goes on here and now and what goes on in our lives can and often does beat us down. And when we're beat down by life and the circumstances of life, it's hard to see beyond what is beating us down or what is making us afraid. And if we don't intentionally lift our eyes and behold the greatness and the glory and the majesty of our God, we will begin to drift in our devotion to God. Beholding the greatness and the glory of God, it, it encourages us and it reminds us that this life is not all there is. And so with this in mind, open your Bible tonight to Isaiah 40. We're going to start in verse 12. Uh, it's on page 547 in your pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Isaiah 40 and verses 12 through 26. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and measured the heavens with a span and calculated the dust of the earth with a measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or who has been his counselor and informed him with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold. The nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its animals enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skilled craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sets above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to live in. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely they have been planted. Scarcely they have been sown. Scarcely has their stalk taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Raise your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who brings out their multitude by number and calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might 
and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Title of the message tonight is The Incomparable God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, we come tonight with a desire to to lift our eyes beyond what we see in this world, to lift our eyes beyond the, the stresses and the anxieties that we face, beyond all of the, the things that the world has going on around us so that we can see you. Father, like Moses, we pray that we would be able to behold your glory. Father, your Holy Spirit can reveal your glory to us from the word, and we ask that he would do that tonight. Father, as we look at this passage and what it tells us about how great and wonderful you are. Let it sink deep into our hearts and let it produce change in our lives. Father, let the awareness of how great and glorious you are, let it relieve our anxieties. Let it spur us on to greater levels of devotion. Father, let it cause our hearts to be filled with courage and hope and love for the great and the awesome God who has saved us and called us. Father, fill me tonight with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And help me to speak your words and your ways for your glory. Have your way in all things, we ask in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Isaiah 40 begins the second division in the book of Isaiah. In this chapter, Isaiah transitions from prophesying about judgment to prophesying about a future salvation. In the future... Israel is going to need salvation because the Babylonians are going to come. They're going to conquer the nation. They're going to take them captive uh, into Babylon and scatter them throughout the, the Babylonian world. Now, God knew the time of Babylonian captivity would be a time of severe discouragement for his people. Now, even though the captivity was a result of their disobedience and their rebellion against God, God did not want this discouragement to overcome them. Therefore, he had Isaiah write a message of encouragement years before the captivity would ever come. And what's great for us to understand and to notice in this passage is that how God seeks to encourage them. God doesn't encourage them by reminding them about how great they are. God doesn't encourage them by reminding them things aren't as bad as it seems that they are. God doesn't do any of that. God encourages them by reminding them how great he is. God knows if they can get a grasp on how great he is, it will hold them up and it will help them in the hard times of life when they're discouraged. Now, recognizing God's greatness, it won't alleviate their circumstances. They are still going to be captives in a foreign land. And it's still going to go on for a a number of years. But recognizing God's greatness will help them remember God is greater than their circumstances. And we all need this kind of encouragement from time to time. We need something to remind us about the greatness and the glory and the majesty of our God. Now, God's argument in chapter 40, it, it builds up until you get to verses 25 and 26. And in 25, God basically says that there's nothing in the world that compares with him. And then he has reminded them about his power. He has reminded them about his knowledge. And he asks them, who are you going to compare with me? Who are you going to make equal with me? Of course, the answer is no one. And then he encourages them to raise their eyes on high and to see the greatness of their God, who is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And so the main point for for the next really the next couple of weeks, at least, comes from what we see in verse twenty five. And it's this God is incomparably great and worthy of incomparable devotion. Nothing 
or no one can be compared to God, not not adequately, not accurately. He is incomparably great. And since God is incomparably great, he is worthy of greater devotion than we would give to anyone or anything else in this world. In this passage, God explains his incomparable greatness in five ways. We'll look at two tonight. First, God is incomparably powerful. Now, earlier in Isaiah 40, God promised he would deliver his people out of captivity. But how could the captives be sure God could really bring them out? How could they be sure God could free them from such powerful enemies as the Assyrians, the Babylonians and the Persians? Now, God anticipates these questions that they would have, and he begins answering them in verse 12. He asks a series of questions in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has measured the heavens with a span? Who has calculated the dust of the earth with a measure? And who has weighed the mountains in a balance? And who has and the hills in a pair of scales? God's questions are meant to to cause them to think and realize that only God could do the things talked about in this passage. Therefore, what he's trying to teach them and trying to teach us is that God can do what no one else can do. God is reminding them of his omnipotence, that he is incomparably powerful and he can do anything that he wants to do and no one can stop him. So what can our incomparably powerful God do that no one else can do? Well, first it says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? God is so great and so awesome that all the water of the planet would fit in the palm of his hand and would not spill over. Well, obviously no human power could ever do this. It poses no problem for God. The implication is if God is so great and so powerful, he can hold all the waters on the planet in the palm of his hand then can't he do whatever else he's promised to do? The obvious answer is yes, of course he can. God has not only measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, he has measured the heavens with a span. God is so great and so powerful, he could measure the universe with just the span of his hand. Now, the span of the hand is from the tip of the index finger, uh, or the tip of the thumb to the tip of the middle finger. The average, The span for the average human is about nine inches. God, on the other hand, is so great and so powerful, the span of his hand covers the entire universe. Now think about the image this is painting for us about the the bigness, the greatness, the power of our God. Our universe is amazingly vast. I read one article that said the universe is at least 156 billion light years wide. Another place said that we really don't have any idea how vast the universe is. Despite the vastness of the universe, God can grip it in his hand because it is no larger than the span of his hand. And again, if God is so great and so powerful that he can do this, can't he do anything else he has said he could do? Obviously, the answer is meant to be yes. God has weighed the dust of the earth. And a measure. He has calculated the dust of the earth with a measure. It's an interesting word picture. It pictures God being able to calculate how much dirt or how much dust is on the planet as easily as we might reach down and grab a handful of dirt off the ground, put it on scales and weigh it. It poses no more of a problem for God than for than it would be for us to measure a handful of dirt. 
the, the next pat, the next part talks about basically the same thing and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills on a pair of scales. It, it's the same idea that just as we could grab an apple and lay it on a scale to see how much that apple weighed, God, if he wanted to, could pick up the mountains and all the hills of the world and he could place them on a scale to find out how much they weighed. And again, the idea is if God is this great and this powerful that he could do this, can't he do anything else he has promised he could do? And the answer is still obviously yes. The point of verse 12 is to remind us about the incomparable greatness of God's power. This is just as important for us to remember in our day as it was for the Israelites to remember in their day. Now, we are unlikely to be taken captive in a foreign land, we will face impossible circumstances in our lives. Circumstances will come up that are far beyond our control. And when the circumstances of life are beyond our control, we feel helpless because we are helpless. And I know a few things that can cause us to feel discouraged as quickly as feeling helpless and tossed about by the circumstances of life. Uh, no one likes to feel helpless. In fact, I, I would imagine if we were to look back over our lives and the times when we felt helpless, we would see that that's when we made some of the worst decisions we had ever made in our lives. Because when we feel helpless, we, we tend to make irrational and unplanned and unthought out decisions. We do first and we think later. And I think the reason that we do this is because in moments where we feel helpless, doing something feels better than doing nothing. Doing something, even if it's a bad something, feels like we have a measure of control. I chose to act. I did that. Now, was it the right thing? Probably not. Probably was a terrible decision. But I chose it and I have a measure of control. Look at what I did. While we may be helpless and we will be helpless at times, the incomparably great and powerful God never is. And if we can keep a grip on that and if we can hold that deep in our hearts, it will help us in those times when we feel helpless. It will encourage us and prevent us, hopefully, from making the bad decisions we tend to make in those feelings of helplessness. God has frequently used the truth of his incomparably great power to encourage his discouraged people. When Sarah was helpless to bear children, God said, is anything too difficult for the Lord? No. So at the appointed time, I'll return to you at this time next year and Sarah will have a son. As the Israelites were planning to, to move into the promised land, God knew that they would have to fight nations greater and larger than they. They would not be able to overcome them on their own. And so God gave them a promise. Don't be terrified of them. Because the Lord your God is in your midst. A great and awesome God. The Lord your God will drive away these nations from you little by little. You'll not be able to put an end to them quickly. Otherwise, the wild animals would become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will turn them over to you and you will throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. I love that passage. It's one of my very favorites. But God knows that his people moving into the promised land would be tempted to let fear keep them from moving into the promised land because of how much greater the enemy was than them. So he encourages them by reminding them again of himself. This is... 
I can't state this enough. The way God encourages his people always is never by encouraging us in ourselves. He doesn't tell them, come on, you guys are great fighters. You know you can do it. Just just think positive and believe in yourself and there's no end to what you can accomplish. That's not what he says. Because that's not how God ever encourages anyone. God encourages his people by reminding them of him. He is in their midst. He is the great and the awesome God. He will give them victory. He will make sure that they overcome. He will enable them to destroy their enemy and take the promised land. Man, that's good stuff to know. It's not about how great we are. It's not about how good we are. It's not about our positive visualization. It's about the great and the awesome God being in our midst who works on our behalf to accomplish his will through our lives. After taking a step of faith and obeying God, Jeremiah prayed and he said, "O Lord God, behold, you yourself have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Jeremiah prayed a, a prayer of faith. God responded Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Again, the answer is no. If we had time, we could look at passage after passage where God reminds us about his incomparable greatness and his great power. And as we look at these passages, we would find a constant theme. What is too hard for us is a simple matter for God. No matter what goes on in our lives, we cannot forget that our God is incomparably great and incomparably powerful and can easily do what no one else can do. This is one of the ways God demonstrates His incomparable greatness and one of the reasons He is worthy of incomparable devotion. So God is incomparably powerful, but God is also incomparably brilliant. As God continues to encourage his people in verse 13 and 14, he does this by reminding them that he knows all things. Now, this is always an important matter for us to know, but it's especially important for a group of people who are relying on a prophecy that was given before they were born, telling them that one day they're going to be delivered. Those who would go into exile uh, would be reading Isaiah's writings and the promise of deliverance that had been written many years before the exile had occurred, probably before they had even been born. How could they be sure God would know what was going on in their world? How could they be sure God could see the future and would know the future and could do in the future what he promised at some point in the past? Well, they could know this by remembering that God is omniscient. Therefore, he knows all things. Just as he did with his strength, God explains his omniscience in several ways using rhetorical questions that are meant to bring us to where the answer is no one. Right. So who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? Right. So what we learn in this is that. One, God has never needed an advisor. Right? God has never directed, or no one has ever directed the spirits of the Lord. 
Now, to understand what it means by the, the Spirit of the Lord, no one's directed him, is to think of the Spirit of God as the person of the Trinity who, who works in the world. This would make the question read something like this. Who has ever advised God on how to act in the world? Has there ever been a person who went to God and told him, God, here's what you need to do and how you need to work in the world. And at the end of that conversation, God said, you're right. I never thought of it that way before. And that, that is exactly what I ought to do. The obvious answer is, is no. At the end of verse 13 and the first of verse 14, we see similar questions. Who or as his counselor has informed him or with whom did God consult and who gave God understanding? Now, the difference in the, the similarities, but the difference is, especially in verse 14, is who did God consult? Right. So not only who came along and said, God, here's what you ought to do. And God was like, that's right. I never thought about that. But was there ever been a time when the Lord God looked out and said, I, I just don't know what to do. I better go ask this person or this being and ask them what ought to be done. God, has there ever been a person that God went to to try to find advice on how he ought to act or what needed to be done? Has there ever been someone God went to and said, I'm stumped. Can you help me? Again, the obvious answer to this question is, is no. God has never needed an advisor of any kind because he is omniscient and he knows all things. In the verse 14, it goes on and says, And who taught him the path of justice, taught him knowledge, informed him of the way of understanding? What we learn in this is that God has never needed a teacher. God has never needed anyone to teach him anything. God didn't have to, to learn from someone else how to deal justly with humanity. He didn't need to learn to know all the things that he knows. No one showed him how the world worked and how everything ought to be. God just knew all things because God is omniscient. There has never been a time where God had to go to someone more knowledgeable than himself to learn. There's no professor, there's no anyone anywhere that went to God and God went to and learned from them. One of the, the fundamental attributes of God is that God is omniscient. God knows all things about all things, always and forever. Right? Compare what we see in verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, has not become weary or tired. His understanding is unsearchable with, with this. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. There is no end to the strength and the power and the greatness and the majesty of God. Similarly, there is no end to the understanding and the knowledge and the wisdom of God. Just as our God is infinitely strong, our God is infinitely knowledgeable. He is infinitely wise. God knows all things. This is one of the things that separates him from all of the, the so-called gods of the world. This is one of the things that separates God from anyone and, and everything else. Turn with me over to Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46 begins... With God criticizing the idols of Babylon. Bel has bowed down. Nebo stoops over. Their idols have become loads for the animals and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome. A load for the weary animal. 
They are stooped over. They have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. God says the idols of Babylon, they're stooped over. They must be carried. They're a burden to be borne. They can't rescue anyone. They themselves are sent into captivity. In other words, the idols are nothing. They are vanity. They are useless. They they are nothing. And then in verse 5, God asks a question similar to what we've already seen. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? God begins to mock the idols. Can you compare me to an idol in verse 6 that is fashioned by a person? I mean, is that what I'm like? Are, are these idols that have to be carried and fashioned by a person? Is that what I'm like? Can, can you compare me to a so-called God that that must or that is fashioned by a person that must be carried because it cannot move? And when it's when you ask it a question, it cannot answer and it cannot save. And then he reminds them about who he is. Verse nine, he is God and there is no other. In verse 9, He is God and there is none like Him. In verse 10, He is the God who declares the end from the beginning. Not only does He do this, He has done this in verse 10. And His plans will be established and His will, or His will accomplishes all of His good pleasure. God always does what he wants to do because he can, but he can make these plans because he knows all things. It's important we understand the incomparable brilliance of God, that we understand God is omniscient. The reason, well, many reasons, but one of the main reasons we have to understand that is like the Israelites, we have something that was written long before our time that is meant to comfort us and encourage us and strengthen us. But how can we be sure that what was written so long ago is true? Right? I mean, God's word is is meant to have a definite impact on our lives. It was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of Scripture, we would have hope. That's part of the reason God has given us his word, that we would read it. We would be instructed by it. We would not give up. We would be encouraged and we would maintain hope. Hope. But our ability to find comfort, encouragement, help and hope from God's word is conditioned upon our believing the things we read are true. I've read many fiction books that I really enjoyed. I enjoyed the writing. I enjoyed the stories. But those things do not comfort me. They do not encourage me. They do not help me in my life and they do not give me hope because they're not true. If I can't read this book and I can't say it's real, it's right, it's sufficient. I will not find comfort from the words it says. I will not find encouragement from the the teaching it gives. I will not be helped through its instruction and I will not find hope, particularly in the difficult times of life. So how can I be sure that this word is true so that I can find those things in it? 
Well, I have to know that it was given by a God who knows all things. By a God who not only knows the end from the beginning, but can reveal the end from the beginning. But it's given by a God whose understanding is infinite. By a God whose wisdom is unlimited. If, if God is, is truly what this book says he is, then he can speak authoritatively and accurately on any subject from history to science to theology. And if he can do that, then I can trust what he has said to us and I can take it and I can hope in it and I can be instructed by it and I can be strengthened through it and I can be encouraged by it. But I must believe in the omniscience of God before the word of God will do me any good at all. Understanding and trusting in the omniscience of God and, and the power of God, the omnipotence of God is crucial to our being able to give God the devotion he deserves. Look at what the Bible says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Part of what that's teaching us is we cannot trust in the Lord and lean on our own understanding at the same time. We have to choose one or the other that we're going to trust in. Either I'm going to trust in myself and what makes sense to me, or I'm going to trust in the wisdom and the omniscience and the power of God. To lean on our own understanding is to limit ourselves to what makes sense to us. Now, if there is no God, then leaning on our own understanding, limiting ourselves to what makes sense to us, is a very rational Logical response. Or if there is a God, but the God is not omnipotent and omniscient, then again, it would make logical sense to lean on our own understanding, to limit us to what makes sense to us. However, if we say we believe in God, specifically we believe in the omnipotent and omniscient God of the Bible, then limiting ourselves to what makes sense to us is a foolish decision to make. I mean, if we truly believe God is as incomparably great as the word says he is. How foolish. Stupid even. Is it to to reject his power and his wisdom and his understanding for ours. The God who knows everything about everything, and I have access to it, that he's he's right. But I, I'm not going to trust in him. Rather, what I'm going to do is I'm going to trust in me. And I'm going to trust in my wisdom and I'm going to trust in my intelligence and I'm going to trust in my strength. That seems to be the dumbest decision we could make if we genuinely believe God is who the Word says He is. 
But this would be true for it would be true for all areas of life. Right. If God is what the word says he is. Then he can speak authoritatively on on everything, not just spiritual issues, not just how to be saved. But on every issue there is on on how we think and on how we speak and on what kind of relationships we should have and how we should act in those relationships, on, on how we manage our time, how we live our daily lives, what it what it means to be devoted to him, what it means to love other people. There, I mean, there there's really should be no area of our life that would not come under the umbrella of the omnipotence and omniscience of God. All of life should be lived trusting in God. And trust is ultimately shown in actions and deeds, not in words. It's shown in our devotion to him. And our devotion to God is shown as we do what he says is best and as we do what he says is right. And every time we do what God says is best and what God says is right, what we're saying is, I trust in the Lord with all my heart. And every time we say, I'm going to do what I think is best and what I think is right, we are showing we are leaning on our own understanding. What God says is right, what God says is best is revealed to us in his word. And this is why it goes on and says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. To, to acknowledge him in all of your ways isn't just to say, hey God, I'm looking to you, right? To acknowledge him, the, the strength of the Hebrew wording there is, is that we are seeking him in all our ways. And I think the danger for us many times is we come to an area and we don't know what to do. We, we're at a crossroads and we don't know what to do. So we will seek God. God, show me where to go right or go left, go here or go there. And, and to be sure, that's the right thing to do. But then we have all of these other areas of life where we feel like we've got it handled. So we don't, we don't need God to show us what to do. We don't need him to show us how to live because we know how to do these things. But that's not what it says. In all your ways. Acknowledge him. So, yes, seek his will in those crosswords of life where we don't know where to go. But seek his will in those other things that we think we've got a handle on, that we think we know what to do. Because when we think we know what to do and we don't need his ways, we are leaning on our own understanding. We are trusting in ourselves. To acknowledge him in all of our ways is to actively seek his will. In everything we do, in all areas of our life. If we trust God, and if we refuse to limit ourselves by our own understanding, if we seek His will in all we do, the promise is He will make our path straight. He will guide us along the best path for our lives. Now again, this is a faith issue, right? Does God know what's best for your life? Does God know the best path for you to go on? Does God know what's best for my life? Does God know the best path for me to go on? If so, then I need to, we need to trust in Him with all of our hearts. Not lean on our own understanding. Seek His will in all we do. And go the direction 
he tells us to go. The incomparably great God is worthy of an incomparably great devotion. And that's not seen in the words. It's seen in the actions and the way that we live our life. It's seen as we do this. So we say, God, this doesn't make any sense to me. It's what you've said. Sought your will. This is it. I know it. It's your will from the word. It's your will that you've shown me. I know I can't do it. I don't even understand why you want me to do it. But this is what I'm going to do. Because this is what you want me to do. What would you want me to do? That's the kind of devotion God is worthy of. And if we truly believe he is incomparably great. That is the kind of life that we will live. The incomparably great, the incomparable greatness of God. It is the reason we trust his judgment. It is the reason we trust his decisions. It is the reason we follow his guidance. Our perspectives on everything are always limited by what we can see, what we can perceive, what we can understand or what we can accomplish in our own strength. God does not suffer from our limitations. Not in any way, shape, form, or fashion. This is why when he leads us to do something that that may seem, may be hard. It may be inconvenient. It may be uncomfortable. We can trust him. And we can trust him by doing what he's leading us to do. Because while we can see all we can see is the hard or the inconvenient or the uncomfortable aspects of the trip. What God sees is how he can help us overcome. What God sees is the end results that he will accomplish through our lives. God knows the ways he's going to enable us to overcome the hard. And God knows what he's going to accomplish as we overcome the heart. So we can trust him and we can obey him and we can go in the direction he leads us to go. The incomparable greatness of God frees us to give God an incomparable devotion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You're worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Help us, O oh God, to live for the kind of incomparable devotion you are worthy of. Father, forgive us where we fall short. Forgive us, Lord, where we struggle to to trust you and where we lean on our own understanding. Probably for all of us here, we it's not all of anything. I doubt any of us could honestly say we fully trust in you and lean not on our own understanding in any area of life. And yet at the same time, I doubt any of us could it could be said of any of us that we don't trust you at all. And we lean fully on our own understanding. So, Father, the areas where we are trusting you, we're seeking your will, we're following your will, strengthen us and encourage us in that. And let us feel your your pleasure in those decisions. And Lord, where we are leaning on our own understanding, limiting ourselves to what makes sense to us. 
Let us hear you calling us to come out into the deep, to get out of the boat, to step out on the water, to know that you can you can do what needs to be done. You can make sure we can do what needs to be done. You already know the path, the troubles, the hardship. You know, you know everything about what's going to happen. And your way is best. Let us trust you. Let's get out of the boat and go to where you are. We love you, Lord. Have your way in all things we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.